Amen. And you may be seated. And thank you, Matt, and all the team for leading us in worship. And I also want to add my greeting to what Mike has already said, what Matt has said, and welcome you to worship. We're going to continue to worship together. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. And as Mike has already said, as Matt's already alluded to, we don't think it is an accident that you are here. That our sovereign God, who is good, has purposed your steps divinely, one way or another, for you to be here to hear from him. Now, this morning, we get to continue in our sermon series through the book of Genesis. We've been walking through this sort of salvation history of redemption, where a holy God redeems a fallen people. Now, we've heard that so many times that we think, well, yeah, that's how it goes. That shouldn't even be a thing. A holy God should not redeem a fallen people, and yet he does. And then what's even more astonishing, he uses those fallen people that he redeems to be instruments of redeeming other fallen people. And then to really ice the cake, he identifies and associates with those fallen people that he has redeemed. He calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there's so much more. What do you think about this God when you think about this God? We're told some amazing things in the Old Testament. In Joshua chapter 10, we are told that God has the sun not move for an entire day. For literally that evening, the sun never goes down so that Joshua and the Israelites can rage and wage war. He is the God of the cosmos, the universe. He is sovereign. In 2 Kings chapter 6, however, we're told that a man is cutting wood and his axe head flies off and it falls in the river. And the man says, oh no, my master, what do we do? This thing was borrowed. What am I going to do? And God has the axe head, a little piece of iron float in the water. Do you see there? He's the God of the cosmos, of the universe. He is sovereign. He is the God of the precise and the detailed. This is our God. And we get to look directly at him in glory at who he is, what he's like. And so we've been looking at this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the book of Genesis. We were looking at sort of a survey and a sweep through the narrative. And the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis is about half of human history. And it details the downward spiral, the decline of depravity. When finally God says, I'm going to save the world. I'm going to bring about redemption and reconciliation through one guy and his family. In chapter 12, we're given the promise to Abram, who's called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to give you blessing. And we've been looking for seven weeks now, all these little adventures and missteps and falters that Abram goes through. Last week, we finally made it in through the seed of Abraham and Sarah is Isaac. And Isaac finally has sons, twins, at the age of 60. He's married at 40. He has twins at the age of 60. They are Jacob and Esau. Last week in chapter 25, we looked at the trickery and the scheming and the deceitfulness of Jacob as he hunts his hunter brother and gets his birthright. Jacob gets the birthright from his older brother Esau. Then in chapter 26, we have this brief interlude where the, the narrative of Jacob and Esau sort of pauses, and we revert back to Isaac. We'll pick up with Isaac in 26. We'll go to Jacob and Esau in 27. In chapter 26, God comes to Isaac, saying, you're the one now. Your father has gone. He was faithful to me. That was generous, was he? Eh, generally speaking, because Abram had faith in the one who was faithful. That's been our big idea for this whole series, that God is faithful. Because he believed me, he enjoyed and he experienced my provision, my prosperity because of my promise. Now, Isaac, I'm going to do this. Trust me. Follow me. 
Isaac knows his is the family. This family that will be the instrumentality of the redemption of the world. Now you have to have that as a backdrop. But what we're going to talk about today won't make nearly as much sense. Isaac, we're told, begins to journey south because there's a famine in the land. Hmm, where have I heard this before? That's right, earlier in the book of Genesis. Abraham decides, hey, there's a famine, I'll go down to Egypt. But this time, God comes to Isaac and says, do not go to Egypt. Don't go there. Stay here. I've got this. What's interesting, God does not come to Isaac and go, oh my gosh, it's happening again. Famine. Oh, I, I hate it when this happens. I'm so sorry, Ike. Never apologizes for those kinds of things. He just says, stay here. I've got this. And so Isaac sojourns into the land of Gerar. Wait, Gerar? Where have I heard that? Oh, that's Philistine country. What's he doing? And he meets a guy named Abimelech. But remember, this is Abimelech, a title. It means my father is king. It's not his actual name. It's literally 90 years from the time that Abraham encountered a guy named Abimelech. So it's not the same guy. It's his title. 90 years goes by. Isaac is in the land of the Philistines with his wife, Rebecca, and his two sons and his entire household. And the text is sort of surprising in how it describes Rebecca. In the English, it says, and she was attractive. Some of your translations might say she was singularly attractive. That is high praise in the Bible for a woman. The, the new sort of contemporary translation would be, she was drop-dead gorgeous. Or what I used to say in the seventh grade, oh man, she'd make your teeth sweat. That's Rebecca. She was in fuego. And so Isaac, as we're going to learn, makes almost all of his major decisions based on his five senses. He's afraid that they're going to kill him and take his wife. <laughs> what? No, Isaac, we've seen this before. It never works out well. He tells the Philistines that Rebecca is his sister and not his wife. Until one day, we're told in chapter 26, that Abimelech looks out his window and he sees Isaac and Rebecca laughing. And knows immediately that they're husband and wife. Oh boy, here we go. This is a classic Hebraic play on words, and it's tongue-in-cheek, and it's a little bit snarky. Isaac's name, Itzach, means laughter. Abimelech looks out, and he sees Isaac and Rebekah mitzyaching. <laughs> they're mitzyaching. They're not, they're not laughing. It's a play on words, and he immediately knows that they are married. That doesn't happen when you just laugh with somebody. So there's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek, wink-wink here that's going on. He immediately knows that, hey, this is your wife. Why did you not tell us? You're bringing a curse on us, just like happens with his father Abraham. You were supposed to be the family that is a blessing to the whole world, and you're bringing a curse. Isaac says, yeah, well, I mean, look at her. And so they finally decide we're going to part ways because Isaac, you've grown too prosperous, too wealthy, too powerful. And so Isaac and his household move on. And they begin to dig water wells out in the desert and they find water. It's happening. God's doing a thing. He's providing. They're getting fresh water in the desert. But the Philistines don't like this, that he's being blessed. And so they fill in the water wells with dirt. Isaac does not retaliate. He moves on. He digs a well. They find water. The Philistines fill it in. Isaac doesn't retaliate. They move on. They dig a well. They find water. It's amazing. When finally the Philistines say, my goodness, it's like God's blessing you. It's like you're, you just can't fail. Like you throw a stick and it just hits exactly where it's supposed to and water comes out. You know what? Let's strike a treaty just like your father Abraham did with the other Abimelech 90 years earlier. And they do and they strike covenant and there is prosperity. 
into which now at long last we come, seeing that God is faithful, we come to chapter 27. Now, this is a long passage, and we're going to tackle all of it because it's one sweeping narrative where Moses is trying to tell the Israelites, God is faithful. Do not go the way of deception. Do not go the way of swindling and cheating and lying and craftiness. God's got this. Moses wants for the Israelites to know this. God wants for us to know this. So this story is about 1850 BC, and there's much for us to learn from it. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis chapter 27. It says, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim. So it's hard for us to sort of wrap our heads around, but between chapter 26 and chapter 27, about 35 years goes by. At the end of chapter 26, we're given this slight quick little footnote that Esau has taken not one, but two Hittite wives. Oh, that's not going to be good. One of them's named Judith. One of them's named Base Math. Right off the top, if math is in your name, you know there's going to be a problem there. He marries two Hittite women and makes his mother and father Isaac and Rebekah, their lives are very bitter. They're 100 years old when Esau gets married at the age of 40. And so Jacob is also 40 at that time. But more time goes by. About 35 years transpires between 26 and 27. So now Isaac in chapter 27 is about 135 years old. And he thinks he's going to die. But what we're going to find out is that poor old Ike, well, he lives another 45 years. He doesn't die till he's 180, we find out much later. But that means that Jacob and Esau in this chapter are about 75 years old. Now, we've heard these stories and they're familiar, but I don't want you to miss what's actually going on. These boys are 75 years old. Esau, by this time, has actually taken yet a third wife. He marries one of the daughters, uh, wait for it of Ishmael. Oh, this is going to be an awkward Thanksgiving in the Isaac household, all right? And Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see. He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am. Isaac's got a plan. Time has passed and the promise of the faithfulness of God has begun to fade. You ever been there? Of course you have. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. No, Isaac, you don't. You got another 45 years in the cooker. So sit tight, big fella. It's going to be all right. Verse 3, now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food. Now, this is going to be three times we're going to find out that Isaac loves savory food, delicious food. He's just driven by his senses, just like his older son Esau. He's just driven by all of his five physical senses. Go take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow. Go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love. Yeah, we, we, we got that, Isaac. You like to eat. And bring it to me, watch this, so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, there is so much wrong here. There is so much not okay with this. God has already come to Rebekah while she was pregnant with the twins and says, the older shall serve the younger. The younger will have mastery. The younger is the vessel through whom I will provide the promise. It's going to be Jacob. And they all knew this. Isaac certainly knows this way back in chapter 22 or 25, excuse me. Isaac knows this. Esau knows this because in chapter 25, he's already traded away his birthright to his brother for a pot of red stew. So both of these guys know this is not how it's supposed to be, but this family is beginning to demonstrate just how fractured and 
favoritism-stricken it is. There's failures in communication all the way through. This is a recipe for how not to run a family or how to be on the Jerry Springer show with your family. This is what we're going to see. Prepare for me so that I may bless you. Even though God had said, I'm going to do this through Jacob, Isaac says, yeah, but, but I like that one. He's more like me. He likes what I like. He does what I do. I get along with him. I have conversations with him. I can't relate to the other one. The other one's always like looking at his phone and dwelling around in tents. It's kind of weird and creepy, frankly. I like that one. I want him to be the instrument. Just like Abram had said, God, can't you just bless Ishmael and do it all through Ishmael? No, it's going to be through Isaac. Verse 5, now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. You get the impression that Isaac and Rebekah have not laughed together in a long time. Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. She was eavesdropping. And so when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Keep in mind, Esau is 75, has three wives by this point. Jacob is 75. She says to her son Jacob, Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food, because, you know, he likes a savory meal, that Isaac, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. There's a quick lesson here. Ladies, if you have an adult son who's 75, it's time to take your hands off the wheel. Don't be Rebecca. You don't get to tell him what to do when he's 75 years old. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for them Delicious food for your father, such as he loves. There's some redundancy here, and it repeats itself, and it says the same thing over and over again. Isaac is making his choices by his senses, and Moses wants the Israelites to know your senses are not an infallible source of truth. The word of God is an infallible source of truth. And so when you find yourself saying to yourself, self, I know what I saw, I know what I need, I know what I want, there's a very good chance you're wrong if it doesn't match up with the word of God. Moses wants us to understand this. Verse 10, and you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Rebecca understands that the oracle of God is for Jacob to be the instrument of promise. And so she decides with limited understanding and unlimited ambition, I'm going to help God out. I'm going to involve myself to make sure God's plan comes to fruition because God needs my help. And when you find yourself thinking thus, it's okay, there's grace for that. Rethink your thinking and repent. God does not need our help. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, and you're thinking he's 75. Surely Jacob's going to say, come now, mother. We'll have none of that scheming and deception in this house. I remember the stories of my grandfather Abraham. See, Abraham dies when Jacob and Esau are 15 years old. He would have heard the stories passed down with frequency and specific detail. No, mother, we know how deception works out. It never pays off. God's will is for us to obey. Is that what Jacob's going to say? Well, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I'm a smooth man. (laughs) Jacob's still concerned that he's got this Auburn Sasquatch for a brother and that he's as slick as a fruit roll-up. Listen, this is not going to work, Mom. Are you kidding me? He's a Chia brother, and I'm a banana peel. This is never going to work. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. The tragedy of this chapter is that it is utterly godless. 
None of these four, who are supposed to be the family, the household that will bless and redeem the world, none of them is seeking for God at all. It's very much like the book of Esther. He's just not mentioned unless it's blasphemous, but he's there and he's working. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. Rebecca demonstrates the lengths that she is willing to go. Should there be a curse, I will take that hit. You need not fear consequence. So Jacob went and took them, the goats, and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. You get the impression that Isaac really likes to eat delicious food. Hmm. And yet, he's a man of the field like his son Esau. They're trusting that he won't know the difference between tame goat and wild venison. His senses are going to betray him. His eyes have betrayed him. His taste, they're hoping, will betray him. Verse 15, Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, who's 75, with three wives, and his best duds are still at mommy's house. That's a tip-off. Things are not where they should be, which were with her in the house. And she put them on Jacob, her younger son. Now, we know from chapter 25 that he was a larger fellow. Jacob was a smaller guy. So this costume, this disguise is nonsense. It's like David trying to wear Saul's armor. It doesn't fit, and it looks preposterous. But she tries to dress him up to procure God's blessing. Never a good idea. Verse 16, And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on a smooth part of his neck. So, as committed as Rebecca and Jacob are to this ruse, they are not as committed as the goats. Not only are they the meal, but now their skin's being used as part of the disguise. The goats were fully in on this deal. They left nothing behind. Verse 17, And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. It is Rebecca who is scheming all of this stuff together. Jacob's going along with it. It was Isaac who was scheming all of this stuff together. Esau went along with it. You see, when we see favoritism in the home, it's going to cause fracture and faction, and it's going to fall and it's going to fail. Verse 18, so he went in to his father and said, my father, and he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And this, though familiar, is tragic. Just the deception, the bold-faced lie, because, well, just like Rebecca, Jacob cares more about the blessing than the blesser. You ever been there? Of course you have, and so have I. So this story is for us, when we care about the gift more than the giver. Here I am. Who are you, my son? Literally, just, who are you? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Now file that away, because this is a Hebraic trigger. The last word is always in the emphatic position. I am Esau, that's a lie, your firstborn. That's what he really wants him to know. I'm your firstborn, or I should be. It's me, Dad. It's me. I should be the one. Why do you always give him the preferential treatment? Why do you like him more? Why do you go hunting with him? It's me. I'm the firstborn. And this is heartrending. And if it's not, we need to pay closer attention. When the unique person in your life withholds that especially unique affection and attention, it causes craters in our lives. And you see Jacob going, it's me, I'm Esau, but more than that, I'm your firstborn. It should be me. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. And poor old Isaac, 
He's going to push back five separate times. He says something is up. This does not feel right, but he can't quite put his finger on it. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? How did you just leave? Like you literally just walked out to go hunting. Now you're already back with a meal? What in the world, Esau? That's good even for you. Jacob answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Oh, we call that blasphemy. We call that taking the Lord's name, who he is, in vain. Attributing to God that which he did not do. And Jacob just flippantly trots that out there. And notice what he calls him, the Lord your God. Now that's particularly painful when you remember that God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob never, ever seems to actually get it until the very end. Verse 21, then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. I can't see you. My hearing says one thing. Let me rely now on my sense of touch. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize that it was Jacob because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Hmm. Verse 24, he said, are you really my son Esau? He's just not quite so sure yet. And he answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Interesting, Isaac, right there with his son, can give him the blessing that he's so desperately wanting. But first, Isaac has to eat and drink, because he's just a sensory dude. He just lives by what he can perceive viscerally, materially, physically. There's not a whole lot of spiritual maturity in this father. So he ate and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come here and kiss me, my son. That kind of weird to us in the 21st century. And some of you boys are going, dad, no, no, we're not doing that. No, no, no. This is one final attempt to get Esau to come near so that he can smell him and touch him and really see if it's actually him. Now, we need to talk a little bit because the narrative slows down right here. We need to talk about the difference between birthright and blessing. There's another really clever Hebraic or Hebrew wordplay happening here. The word for birthright is bekarah. And it has the idea of a last will and testament. It has the idea of you are legally going to be the head of the family. You get a double portion of all the material assets, wealth, and all of our stuff. You get a double por portion. You're going to run the clan, the tribe, the household. It's all going to be yours. That's the birthright, bekarah. The word blessing is berakah. Very, very similar, but importantly different. The, uh, the uh, berakah is the blessing. This is more of a prophetic utterance that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You will do this by God because he was the head of this promised family. I utter these things. It will come to pass. It is me knowing specifically who you are, knowing that I am the especially unique person in your life, and speaking into you with especially unique blessing. Not just saying, hey, you're good. Hey, you're pretty. No, no, no. It is a, I know you, and I'm speaking this nobility. I'm speaking this charge. I'm speaking this glory, this beauty, this prosperity into you because of who you are. Now, parents, if you don't know how to bless your children thus, there's still time. Isaac 
has to bless his sons who are 75, who are still craving recognition, affirmation, appreciation, attention from their father. And we know this psychotherapeutically in our day and age, someone who misses that, who's always craving, striving, grasping for someone especially unique to them to tell them that they are especially unique. And when that's lacking, the person, well, they flounder. They, 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 they wander about aimlessly. And so there's this bekarah berakah wordplay back and forth. Esau has already traded away his birthright, and now Isaac is trying to maybe recompense for that somewhat. Watch what happens. It just keeps getting worse. Verse 27, So Jacob came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Finally, that was the kicker. Smelling, I couldn't quite see. My hearing was weird. Apparently, he wolfs down the tame goat, thinking it's wild deer. That doesn't give him a tip off, but he smells. He goes, ah, that smells like my outdoorsman. Ew, 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 but okay. Hmm, kind of goaty, kind of gamey. Hmm, Esau, right on. This is the blessing, and I want you to hear how Isaac pronounces this prophetic blessing. Because remember, he thinks it's Esau. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. This is agricultural, economic prosperity and bounty. What Esau would care about. Jacob just wanted fast Wi-Fi. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. Now he knew better than that. And make your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. It's the same words that God uses with Abram in Genesis chapter 12 in the promise. You will be a blessing, and those who curse you will themselves be cursed. Isaac is wanting anyone who opposes Esau to be cursed. Verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. It's, it, it couldn't be a more perfectly staged Greek tragedy, but it's more ancient. It's Hebrew. Verse 31, he also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father because Isaac loved savory meals and delicious food. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Now remember what Jacob said, I am Esau, your firstborn. That's the emphatic position. Esau didn't really care that much. He knew that he'd already traded away his birthright. I am your firstborn, Esau. And so you see already the different priority to be the instrument of blessing. Then Isaac trembled very violently Now, we read that and we go, well, he's an old man and he's blind. No. The full gravity and the weight of what he has tried to do and failed comes crashing in on me. He's been trying to scheme. He's been trying to thwart the plan and the purpose of God, and he now realizes, I am defeated. God has won. It is a very visceral, emotional thing. Isaac, he says, trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. And then there's a pivot. Yes, and he shall be blessed. And this is hard for us to understand because we think, well, you just said some words. You just call him back in and say, Jacob, you cheated. No, no, take backs. Esau, it's for you. 
Now there's a, there's a U-turn here. Yes, and he shall be blessed. The full weight of what he has done crashes down on Isaac and he says, I remember God had said, and I tried to upend his plan. I tried to thwart his purpose, but God has his way. God is faithful and I have failed. Verse 34, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, oh my father. This is a 75-year-old man still craving the acceptance, the affirmation, the recognition from his especially unique father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Can he just undo it? No, it has been pronounced. Word is bond. It has been spoken. It is finished. Esau said, is, it not, is he not rightly named Jacob, the sneaky up from behind one? He fits his name, that Jacob guy, for he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, my uh, Bekarah, and behold, now he's taken away my Barakah. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? I've got nothing left. I've given it all to him. Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Oh, Isaac now fully knows what he has to do. And he utters confidently this counter-blessing. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwellings be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. And sure enough, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, all end up dwelling east of the Dead Sea in some incredibly harsh, bitter, dry terrain, what is today modern-day Jordan. By your sword shall you live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. And sure enough, about 850 years later, under the reign of King Solomon, the Edomites revolt and they rebel. And this hostility between Jacob and Esau continues on for 1850 years until finally the promised seed of Jacob, one Jesus of Nazareth, finds himself standing on trial before the king of Israel, one Herod the Great, who is an Idumean, which is a way of saying he is an Edomite who gladly agrees to have this Jesus condemned by crucifixion. By your sword shall you live, and by, your, by you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Verse 41, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him, and Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Eh, not so much, more like 45 years out, but all right. The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. He just snaps. The sibling rivalry explodes. I'm going to kill that guy. See also Cain and Abel. This is the family, I remind you, that God says singularly from the line of Seth to Shem on Noah's ark all the way through to Abraham to Isaac and now these two sons and they're going to try to kill each other. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. Someone overheard this mumbling of Esau, and they tell Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now we're going to see the full weight of this tragedy come crashing down on Rebekah. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran. That's modern-day Syria. 
Flee and go to Haran and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Rebecca schemes, trying to get what she wants and as it will turn out, she will lose everything. She sends her son Jacob away. She will never see him again. He's gone 20 years, and during which time she dies. She will never see Esau again. She dies. Isaac goes 45 years, and one gets the impression when he dies, he's 180 years old, and Isaac dies alone. By all this scheming, all this deception, they gained nothing, and they lost everything. God still did what God said God would do. Verse 46, then Rebekah said to Isaac, oh, but this is not laughter. They've not spoken. They've had no relationship. But now they're finally talking, but it's not good. Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. As if things couldn't get worse, now Rebekah tells Isaac, I hate my life because of Esau's wives. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? She's not just kvetching, inventing her spleen. She's still scheming. She hatches another plan. We can't let this happen. I need it to be your idea, Isaac, to send Jacob away. And they go in together, and we're going to find out Isaac condones it, Jacob goes away, and goes through hell. And we're going to find out much later in Jacob's life, that blessing that he heard from his father, it was never real. Because he knew that it was for his brother. The specificity was specifically for his older brother. And so Jacob, for the rest of his life, grasps and grasps and grasps. You might remember the story, we'll talk about it in a few weeks, where Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord. And he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Because I'm so lacking. Now this is a word for all of us. To remind us, Moses wants the Israelites to remember, God wants us to remember that God is faithful. We need add nothing. So what do we take away from this story? Let me give you four implications, four points of application from this wonderful story. Number one goes like this. God's will is for you to be God's will. That might be vexing for some of you. That's okay. There's grace for that too. God's will is for you to be God's will. Most of us want for God to tell us what to do when it comes to which job should we take, which person should we marry, or what city to live in, or which church to attend. God will rarely, if ever, tell you those kinds of things. It's not that he doesn't care. It's that he's given you dignity and nobility to decide those things for the right reasons. He has given us all the necessary criteria we need. What is that criteria? He's told you and me what he desires of us. To live justly, meaning that we are actively agents of setting the world to rights. I hear Christians all the time say things like this. It doesn't matter how we live. It doesn't matter what we do. It's all going to burn. False, a lie from the pit of hell. What God wants of you and me is that we live lives of not morality, although that's important. This is live lives of righteousness, setting the world to rights anywhere we can. To love loving kindness that loving kindness is our favorite thing in the world other than the one who himself is loving kindness, and that we walk humbly with our God. That's Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Oswald Chambers put it this way, the child of God stops asking what God's will is and begins to realize that he or she is the very will of God. 
it's you walking around in the world. That means you stop worrying or fretting about God's specific plan for your life. It doesn't really matter what color shirt you wear. God loves both colors. Just get it and go. What matters is that you are the person through whom Jesus would live his life if he were here today because in you, he is. You and I don't ever have to craft and scheme to accomplish God's will ever. There's an old adage that says, if you want to make an omelet, you've got to break some eggs. But God makes the very best omelets, and he never has to break any of those proverbial eggs at all. So that prepares us for our second point. It goes like this. God is the greatest author. I know this whole story reads like some Greek tragedy. Well, what would have happened if X or Y or Z, what if they hadn't tried to scheme? Would God still have? What would have happened if she hadn't? Or if he hadn't, would God still have? I'll tell you what would have happened. People would have been blessed according to God's goodness and his promise, no matter what the circumstances looked like. We've seen life spring from death several times in this series alone. Isaac had willingly crawled up on the altar and was ready to be sacrificed by his father. And he saw God provide, and yet time ticked by, and he faded and he forgot. And we all do. We must be reminded. That's why we do what we do in worship, in community. We need one another to tell one another the truth. See, God exists and enjoys the eternal now. He sees everything in one view. He reacts to nothing When we try to write our own story, we gain nothing and we lose everything. And God's going to accomplish all that he had purposed all along anyway, because God is faithful. No matter how hard one might try, one simply cannot bless himself. It doesn't work. You can try to tell yourself, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. But if it's not actually true, you can't lie to yourself. It doesn't ever work. For all of her trying to keep her family on track, Rebecca went about it in her own way, and it destroyed her family, and she never saw her sons again. And we get the impression that Isaac never sees his sons again until maybe, possibly, on his deathbed, they come, he breathes his last, and they die. And it was all so unnecessary. How could God not be the best author? He's God, and he's therefore the very best communicator. So we can certainly trust him beyond what our senses tell us, Isaac. Number three. Obedience is its own reward. I want you to imagine, because Moses wants you to imagine, because God wants you to imagine, what would have happened if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have followed the express direction of God completely correctly. It would have been great. Now, of course, we get the privilege of looking from the outside, but it's no different from our lives. This is what the wisdom of the Bible gives us. Our lives are being lived in linear history as well. And so as we zoom out and look at their lives, we have the privilege and the prerogative to zoom out and look at our own lives and go, am I following the same path? This story is a harpoon in the heart of, yeah, but really, I know that God has said this, but I got to get this. No, this kills the yeah, but really mentality. I know that God wants this or that, but I feel like I should have that or those, and I will have what I am owed because ultimately God wants me to be happy. Nope. No, he does not. God wants you to be holy, and he wants you to be his, and that's because that is the only life that's actually worth living. And to be exceedingly clear and tedious if necessary, by obedience, I do not mean moralistic behavior modification or legalism or dressing up in someone's outfit like Jacob does and like people in the church have been doing for centuries and trying to get someone's blessing. If I just look like her, if I just look like him, I'll go to church and then God will bless me. No, he will not. 
but he has blessed you already, as we'll find out in a moment. I mean obedience. Trust God, love others, full stop. That's what Jesus says. Love God, love others. Trust God, love others. How in the world are people actually supposed to know the difference between obedience and legalism? Fourth point goes like this. Our children need the gospel. Now, this is where I rant and rave and carry on and preach a bit. Our children need the gospel. Please hear me. I am not merely saying that our kids need to get saved. Although, of course, I want for all of our kids to enjoy the eternal blessing of salvation. I mean so much more than that. I mean that they need the glory of the gospel, and they need it from you, not from me. If all they're ever getting is the gospel from me, they're not getting it. Let me put a finer point on that just in case you're misunderstanding me. Your children and grandchildren and nephews and nieces and church kids and neighbor kids need the gospel more than anything else in the world. That means they need the gospel even more than proper doctrine. Can I just say that? Listen, I get it. We're a Bible church, and I promise the doctrine's going to come. We're going to thump them upside the temple with the scriptures. But if that's not built on the basis of the gospel, you will do nothing but breed an entire tribe of Isaacs and Rebekahs and Esau's and Jacob's, all four of which are at fault for this mess. Their problem was not that they needed more information. Their problem was that they didn't believe the gospel. They didn't trust that God is faithful. And your kids will not either if you merely tell them propositionally. You've got to tell them that you love the God who makes the sun stand still in Joshua 10, that you will love the God that makes the axe head float, that you are a deceiver and a liar and a cheater and you are unworthy of his love and his grace and affection, but that you are loved anyway. Now, if your kids don't know that about you, it's a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. Your kids need the gospel. This is the book of Judges. What happens when parents... Families, churches, communities fail to teach the children of the faithfulness of God. It is a recipe that absolutely demands the collapse of a society and a culture and a community. Our kids need the gospel. He's worthy of all our attention and all our affection. Do your kids know that you are unworthy, but because of your faith in the one that is worthy of all of God's attention and affection, you love the gospel. That one, well, you know, it's Jesus. How do I put a wrapper on all of this passage? I want to remind you that God is faithful. How do we actually point to, from this passage, to Jesus? Because Jesus says himself in Luke 24, all the great grand stories of the Old Testament, they're all preparing for and pointing to Jesus. How does this ready us for the coming of Messiah? Oh, This passage is so amazing, it gets me. I love this passage. Look at Jesus. Jesus is a better Rebecca. I know that's weird. I know, I get it, it's weird, but she's a better Rebecca. Let me explain. The book of Colossians says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn from among the dead. He's the prototype. He's the one. He's the ultimate utter firstborn to whom all authority, all wealth, all assets, all power, control, and sovereignty has been given. It's him. He's the firstborn. But rather than try to scheme and craft, oh, this firstborn willingly yields and lays it aside. And when Rebecca says, I will take the curse... I'm going to dress you and I will take the curse. What we see in Christ is he says, I will dress myself, not in goat skin, in your sin. 
I will become all of that sin. I will make you the firstborn. So that when we get to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 23. Do you know what the writer of Hebrews calls the church? It's an amazing thing. We are the assembly of the firstborns. Now that makes no sense. You can only have one firstborn. Unless every single one of us in the church, in God's eyes, are the firstborns. The especially unique one has said to you and to me, you are especially unique. Behold my son who, with whom I am well pleased. Do you see the blessing from the father at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration? And so when the epistles tell us over and over again, you are the beloved. You are my firstborn male son with whom I am well pleased. To you I have given everything. You lack for nothing. Oh, our God is so good. I said earlier, nobody was more committed than the goats. Untrue. Jesus was more committed. He became our sin. But not only that, we find out in Revelation 7 that he dresses us in garments of white after having washed us white with his scarlet blood. The story is preparing us for Jesus. He is so good. Our God is faithful. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning, for the opportunity to gather together as firstborns with whom you are well pleased, every one of us. We need not grasp for any blessing. What more could you do? Beyond Calvary, you cannot go. So Father, would you fill whatever void? Would you fill whatever void is causing people to make decisions thus or that that are being driven by their senses? Would you remind us that you love us you see us, you know us, you are crazy about us. You, the especially unique one, have told us that we are especially unique to you. And so, Father, if there's anyone here this morning on any of our three floors or watching remotely that does not know you, that is still grasping for some sort of special uniqueness, some blessing, some barakah in their life, Jesus them, Jesus them, that they would find themselves in Christ as firstborns, that they would step out of death into life. Father, that you would move by your spirit and that they would believe. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us that we are prone to wander, prone like Isaac to leave the God we love. And so would you give us a homing beacon for your people in your church to gather around in community your word, to recognize the indwelling leading of your Holy Spirit, that we would ever increasingly be transformed to the image of your firstborn not into the image of Isaac or Rebecca or Jacob or Esau. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for knowing us. Thank you for seeing us. Thank you that you are our faithful God. We pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.